Happy Palm Sunday. Here we are. Here we are. As, uh, as, as we're getting into this sermon this morning, I, um, I was thinking about this. And you know, there's, there's so many ways that you can approach different teachings throughout the Bible. There's so much about Jesus' life. There's this very specific things that he, that he taught. You know, the example is the, the Sermon on the Mount. Very specific things that Jesus is teaching that his words inform us about. And it takes an entire lifetime to get into the depths of what it is that he's teaching. And there's very specific things that he does that we can study and learn from. And, and, and in the midst of those very specific things, there's at any moment you can, you can step back and see this big picture. Jesus is always doing something. No, there's not a single move that he makes in Scripture. Anytime that he leaves Jerusalem and goes to, goes to Jericho or goes to Galilee or into Samaria or Tyre and Sidon, every move that he makes, he's not just traveling willy-nilly. He doesn't just say things. He's not impetuous. He's not random. He's not irreverent or ever lost. He's always doing something. And what I love about this story is that it's very specific. He's in a specific place. He's doing a specific thing. But he's also set up all of these things throughout the course of his public ministry that are easy to miss. And then they come to a fruition here with his entrance into Jerusalem as he's riding on this donkey. It's not random. It's not him just needing a lift. You know, I mean, everything that he does means something. And it's been my burden long before I was ever a pastor, long before I ever worked for a church. It's been a burden of mine that people don't make the mistake of looking at the circumstances of their life and come to the conclusion that God is a certain way or not a certain way based on the circumstances that you're experiencing right now. What I mean by that is that we can look around in our, at our, in our life at any given moment and, and think, well, Jesus is trustworthy and he's good and he's compassionate because my circumstances right now are awesome. And based on the way that I feel and based on the way that my life is going, I come to the conclusion that God is, God is awesome, that Jesus Christ himself is a good, trustworthy God because I feel good. Because the danger there is that when circumstances go wrong, terribly wrong, or even just, you ever just look around in your life and go, what is, I don't know what's going on here. This doesn't make any sense. Things didn't work out the way that I had planned. God, are you even listening? Are you even paying attention? That can be the conclusion that we can come to. And I have seen it more often than anything else in my life as a believer, everybody that I went to church with as a kid, every, every Bible study leader, every, every youth group leader, every, every worship leader that I have personally known living up to this, to the last five years of my life has rejected their faith, turned away from Jesus Christ because things were going in a certain way in their life that they either didn't like or they didn't agree with. And instead of trusting the Lord and following him through the chaos, they just abandoned him threw away their Bible, decided that they were going to go their own way, really revealing that they were never disciples of Jesus at all. They just thought that as long as my life is going well, then, I, then I'm okay with Jesus. And what we see here is Jesus doing several things on many levels that don't make any sense. And so my, my question, my question for myself, my question for any ministry that I have at any point in my life is, 
is do you trust Jesus really? Do you know who he is? Do you know what, he's, what he has done in history? And my, my hope and my aim and my goal, regardless of the circumstances that we have in our lives at any given moment, is that we trust Jesus. We can hurt and we can cry out and we can scream and we can express pain and sorrow and anguish and grief and doubt. The Psalms are full of that. But the challenge is to not be informed by our doubt, not to believe our skepticism or to believe that the ultimate truth is this fear that we're feeling, but to trust what the scriptures say. And the scriptures are so clear again and again and again. Life is hard and Jesus is good. And he didn't, exempt, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't isolate himself from that experience. His life was tremendously difficult. If anybody should have had an easy ride, it should have been him and we're gonna see that is not the case. There's this verse in Isaiah 55 that says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Do, do we trust Jesus Christ? Do we trust him? Do we believe in him? Do we embrace him? Do we love him? Do we have any affection for him whatsoever? Because it's not a good practice to look at the circumstances of our life and base our belief on Jesus on that because they fluctuate so dramatically and sometimes so quickly, things can turn around so fast. And we see Jesus moving intentionally, brilliantly in this event right here. But if you read the Gospels at all, if you read them from beginning to end, you come to this event right here and, you, and if you're paying close enough attention, you'll get to verse 28 and following and go, what is Jesus doing? This doesn't make any sense. And the reason is, so there's, some, there's, there's multiple levels here. The, the reason is, is, this is, this is obviously very public. This is titled the triumphant entry. It's very public. It's filled with not only witnesses, but a, a lot of praise. There's worship. There's this very loud public. There's, there's people from all over the place coming to this feast. Jesus is not hiding here, but if you, if you read the Gospels from beginning to end, you, you see quickly that Jesus has actually spent a good amount of effort trying to avoid this exact same, this exact kind of situation. He's, he's actually gone out of his way to tell people, don't bring any attention to me. He actually commands it of people. And I wanna give you some specific examples because I, I, I wanna make this point very clear. Jesus has been avoiding this intentionally, this kind of thing. In Matthew 16 is the famous story of, of Jesus asking his followers, what do people, who do people say that I am? And, and they throw out some guesses and then, and then, and then Peter in, in, a, in a moment of clarity says, well, you are, you are the Christ. And, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for heaven, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he tells them in chapter 16, verse 20, he warns them, he sa it says that he warned the disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. You're right, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who, in, who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Now keep quiet about it. In the very next chapter in 17 is the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John onto the mountaintop and he's glorified before their very eyes and Moses shows up and Elijah shows up and it's this incredible moment of revealing some of Jesus' glory and as they're coming down the mountain 
chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell nobody about this vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus casts a demon out of an individual, and he tells that demon, because the demons know who Jesus is. It's very interesting. They always know exactly who he is, and they say so. And this, this demon inside of this man says, who, what do you have to do with me? I know who you are, O holy one of God. And Jesus casts out the demon and then warns the demon and says, don't tell anybody about who I am. In John chapter four, Jesus is getting quite popular. It says that he started baptizing more people than John the Baptist ever had. And so he starts getting, he starts getting popular. People start knowing who he is. And so he actually leaves the area. He goes north into Samaria to get away from all of the commotion that's happening around him. So there's, and that, those are just a few. There's more than, there's more than that that, we're, that we'll look at as, as, we, as we progress on this morning. But it just, the point is that Jesus is going out of his way to make sure that he's keeping a lower profile than he otherwise could have. You know? And now all of a sudden, he shows up publicly, very dramatically, very bold, very loud, and he starts accepting these messianic titles and treatment of the Messiah. He, he welcomes it. He accepts it. The entrance into Jerusalem, uh, the triumphal entry, is recorded in all four Gospels, and each individual writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, come at it from a little bit of a different vantage point. They all add a little bit of a different detail. And so we know from, from Matthew's uh, gospel that just before the triumphal entry, just before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he heals a couple of guys and they cry out to him. They say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus accepts that title. And everybody knows what that title means. That's a messianic term. And Jesus accepts that title, which means that he's publicly declaring, I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for. It is me. And so you start to get this sense that this like, okay, this, this low key thing, he, it, he's, he's moving away from that now. He's going the opposite direction. He's publicly accepting this title. And this title, this has tremendous implications. It means that he is the Messiah, which means that, and everybody that is, that is around and knows the Old Testament knows that what this means, what this title is representing and implies is that every king in the Old Testament, read, read about Joshua, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, king after king after king after king after king. Some were really bad, some were pretty good, some were kind of in the middle, but all of them were not Jesus, but they were pointing to Jesus. All of them were a king pointing to the ultimate king, the one who is to come. Every one of their crowns that landed bloody on the battlefield was pointing to the crown of Christ that's bloodied on the cross as he fought against sin and against death. Every animal that was ever sacrificed in the Old Testament, all the blood that was shed, was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who in John chapter 1 is called the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sins of the world. Really. He really takes away the sins of the world. The blood of bulls and rams cannot do so, but the blood of Jesus Christ actually can. Every sacrifice was pointing to him. Every king was pointing to him. Every Old Testament prophet was pointing to the prophet, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Every washing, every ceremonial cleansing in the temple, all of it points to the righteousness, the sinless perfection of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, 
explains to two of his disciples how all of the Old Testament points directly to him. And now his actions in this moment are saying that out loud publicly for all to see, for all to hear, for all to understand. He says, go and get me a donkey. And if anybody gives you any grief, say that the Lord has need of it. The people in the area knew who Jesus was. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead and word about that got out very quickly. People knew who he was. They knew what he had done and they thought of him as Lord. The Lord has need of it. Whoever it was that owned this donkey knew that's Jesus. We're gonna let him have, we're gonna let him have the donkey. And so they put Jesus on it and he, and he starts heading towards Jerusalem and they spread their garments, verse 36, and as he, as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. This is a sign of submission. This is, this is a type of bowing down in submission to King Jesus. This similar thing happens in 2 Kings chapter 9 with King Jehu. The, he is king and they lay their garments down at his feet. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king comes seated on a donkey. Jesus is acting out and claiming that that messianic prophecy, the one who comes in, the king who comes in riding on a donkey, that is me. And by the way, that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 was written 500 years before Jesus was even born. And so suddenly he's claiming to be Messiah. He's been avoiding these titles. He's been avoiding this sort of attention. He actually left town on more than one occasion to avoid this kind of thing. And now all of a sudden, he's embracing it. What is he doing? Because if you're paying attention and you get to this part of the Bible, you get to this part of this gospel, you go, this, this is the opposite of what he's been doing up until this point. He's claiming Messiah, he's claiming to be Messiah loudly and boldly, and he's also doing it at what seems to be the exact wrong moment. This is one of my favorite things about Jesus, one of my favorite stories. The timing here makes absolutely no, no sense. Somebody could grab Jesus by the collar and say, what are you doing, man? This is all wrong. Are you, are you, are you crazy? Are you thinking straight? Jesus, what are you doing? Have you ever, have you, are, how, how about, how are you doing? How, how's your life? Are you looking around at your life and you wanna grab Jesus by the collar and say, what are you doing, man? It's a very human way to feel. And so what I would like to point out is that it might seem like the perfectly wrong timing, but this is the exact right timing. And what I, what I mean by this is that Jesus is come, becoming very public in this moment and it seems like the opposite of what he should be doing because at this time in his life, he's actually a wanted criminal. So write down in your notes John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. It's the parallel, John's telling of this story. And what John gives us a, a couple of different details. Jesus, like I said, had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So, so now get this, follow, follow with me, follow with me. Follow, we're, gonna, we're gonna go, we're gonna just do this, we're gonna just do this, the whole story here. Jesus leaves Jerusalem, he leaves Judea because Things are, getting, things are getting heated. There's people that want him dead. And so we read in John's gospel, one of the things that Jesus got in trouble for saying is, I and the Father are one. In John chapter eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And people knew what he was claiming. People knew that he was saying, I am Messiah, I am God. And they picked up stones to throw at him. And in John's gospel in chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And therefore they were seeking again to kill him 
but he eluded their grasp, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist was first, and he was staying there. So Jesus has left the region because people want him dead. And then in the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus gets a message that his friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus, after some time, we don't, have, we don't have time to get into the whole story, but after some time, Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 11, verse 7, he says, let us go again into Judea. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to, to kill you, and you're going to go there again. What are you doing? What are you thinking? And then Jesus makes it worse because, as you probably know the story, Lazarus dies of his illness, and Jesus goes and he raises him from the dead. And this is sort of the, it's sort of the last straw. You know, there's been a lot of impetuous attempts at quote-unquote street justice. Jesus has said things that's made the religious leaders angry, and they've, they've attempted to kill him on the spot. Luke chapter 4, he goes back to his own hometown. He preaches one sermon, and they try to throw him off a cliff. It's this, it's this very emotional, passionate, instant justice. Let's get this done right now. But with the raising of Lazarus, the leaders don't just try to kill him there on the spot. They actually go, they actually try to do it legally. They actually put out a warrant for his arrest, as it were. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And in chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees hear about it. And so they gathered together with the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court of Israel. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. Guys, we've got to get organized. We've got to come together. We've got to actually put this guy down. What are we doing? We're wasting our time. The whole world is going after him. This has to end. So they get organized and they make an effort to actually put Jesus down. No more street justice, no more impetuous, impassioned anger. They're gonna actually plan something out. And so verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among them. Jesus no longer walked, this is just before he goes into Jerusalem. He no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the region in the wilderness called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from that region before the Passover so that they could purify themselves. And they were seeking Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll actually come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that they were to report it so that they might seize him. So Jesus leaves Judea. He says, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. And they want to kill him. And then he goes, he wants to go back into town and his disciples are like, are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. They were just trying to kill you. But then Jesus makes him even more mad because he raises Lazarus from the dead. And now there's an actual effort. There's a warrant for his arrest. So much so that even affiliating with Jesus, if you know where he is, then you're guilty of aiding and abetting a criminal. If you know where he is and you do not tell us, you are now guilty of a crime. Jesus is a wanted outlaw. And the very next thing that he does in John chapter 12 and in our story here in Luke 19 is Jesus goes into Jerusalem loud and bold. And you have to stop and wonder, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense, especially when you consider this. I'm gonna take the time to do this because I want us to understand that Jesus is perfect. 
And what he does is perfect. And the, and the timing that he does it is perfect. And it may not make sense to you. And we have to die to that. We have to trust him. We have to trust what he does. In John 6, it's another example of, of him leaving when things get exciting. It's the story of him feeding the 5,000 men. So when you include women and children, it's a lot of uh, experts and commentators put the number at about 20 to 25,000 people. He miraculously feeds them, and they're stoked. And it says that they looked upon him. This is chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. And they said, this is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is him. And it says that they were going to force him to become king. So Jesus does something awesome. Circumstantially, people are like, we're stoked. We're fed. We're out here by the lake having a picnic. Hey, this guy's all right. You know, they don't have Kroger's there and just like lunch like that. You know what? This guy could be somebody. Maybe we should get him into office. And he leaves. It says that they were going to force him to become king and he leaves. Why? They weren't trying to hurt him. They weren't trying to kill him. They were trying to put him on a throne and he leaves. And now he's a wanted outlaw. People are looking for his blood and he comes out as bold and as public as you possibly can. So everybody who wants him dead can very easily go, oh, there, there he is. What is he doing? He's been avoiding this kind of attention and now he's, now he's stepping right into it. And this is the worst possible timing, ostensibly but it's the perfect, it's perfect timing. What is Jesus doing? So back to Luke. He rides in on a donkey, verse 37, and as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God, rejoicing with a loud voice for all of the miracles which they had seen. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Notice what has attracted their attention to him. Verse 37, they were rejoicing with a loud voice for the miracles that they had seen. For all of the miracles which Jesus had done, they were praising him. In John 2, before the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, the reason why there are so many thousands gathered there is because it says that Jesus went over to the Golan Heights. He went over the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it says there that the many were following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. And that parallel story in John 12, Jesus is riding into, it's the exact same story. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, and it says in verse 18, that for this reason the crowd went and they met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Specifically there is the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. People are pursuing Jesus enthusiastically, passionately. They're going the distance to, to follow him, but they're doing it because they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw the miracles. Jesus was healing people of disease. He was casting out demons. He was he was raising people from the dead. And people love that stuff. You know, we love that stuff. We love it when suffering is ameliorated. We vote for those people. We put those people in office. We praise those people. But this is, this is why Jesus kept moving. Because people were thinking of Jesus wrongly. They didn't understand exactly who he was and they didn't understand exactly what kind of king he was. They didn't understand what it meant for him to be king. And so on one hand, Jesus kept moving 
because people were thinking of him wrongly. In John 6, they wanted to make him king, but they, didn't, they, had, no, they had no thought in their mind of repentance. They had no thought in their mind of, of walking away from their sins and of, of denying self and following hard after him, picking up their daily cross. They had no thought of self-sacrifice. They wanted him because, hey, he feeds us, he heals us, he takes care of us. Right here and right now, we like that. And as you know the story, Jesus starts talking about his blood and his flesh being real drink and real food. And it says that before, the, before chapter 6 of John ends, it says that the many walked away from him. And the language there in the original Greek is, is permanent. They walked away and they, they, they had no intention of coming back. What happened? Well, their expectations were off. And this is, this, is my, this is my burden, that Jesus does things we don't understand, and, and people who are in church and leading Bible studies and leading worship, something happens, or something doesn't happen, and the many walk away from him. Friends, I implore you, please don't make that mistake. Don't let the circumstances of your life draw you to the conclusion that Jesus is malevolent or indifferent or not paying attention. That's a mistake. And the proof that we can trust him is, is that he's, he's doing this right here and right now. We may not understand what he's doing, but we can trust that he is doing something for our good. Matthew's account of this story, Matthew 21, the people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means save now, the people wanted liberation. The people in, in Jesus' day wanted liberation from the Romans. They were under the, the political thumb of the Romans. It was an occupied state. They were paying Roman taxes. They were subject to them, and the Jews were tired of it. And they thought that Messiah would come with guns ablazing and liberate them from that oppression. And here Jesus shows up. And they're crying out, Hosanna, son of David. And he's riding on the donkey from Zechariah chapter 9. And he's done all of the miracles. This whole event is taking place because the people understand something about Jesus. And he is saying, I am this Messiah. And this stands out to the people because now they think, okay, he's, like, he's, going, he's going to war. It's finally time. You know, it's finally, it's finally time this is going to happen. Jesus is riding in. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna raise up an army. He's going to pick up a sword, and he's going to kick the Romans out. And he's finally making a move. He's declaring his kingship to them, to you, to us. They wanted this warrior Messiah. They wanted the benefits of a kingdom that was curated to their preferences right here and right now. And here he finally is, right? He's finally here. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. Hey, man, a guy that can do a thing like that, he could beat the Romans. He could liberate our lives right now. He's not going to ask me to give anything up. He's going to give me something. We see this throughout the course of Jesus' life. In John chapter 7, his own brothers. It's a fascinating story. John chapter 7, Jesus is, is doing miracles, and there's a, there's a feast that's about to take place. And, in Jerusalem, which is, you know, the New York City of the time, and his brothers say to him, hey, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do your signs and miracles there, where you'll have a following, where people are going to see you, and the word will spread out. You got to get out of Galilee, man. You know, back here, back here, we, we, you know, we've got, a, we've, got a, we've got an Arby's and a gas station. There's nothing here. Go to town, man. Go to the big city and let yourself be seen. And it's so fascinating. In chapter 7, verse 5, it says, they said this to him because they were not believing in him. 
Isn't that interesting? They understand his miracles, they understand his power to some extent, and they're saying, go to Jerusalem and make a move because they didn't believe in him. What did they not believe? They didn't believe in him as savior from sins. They didn't believe in him as the king of the universe who's coming to actually die so that we might be made righteous. That's not what they had in mind. And so they had some belief in him, but it was skewed, it was misguided, it was misunderstood. This has happened to Jesus throughout the course of his life. Here is the king, he's riding in on the donkey. We have a story in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, James and John's mom says, hey, when you come in with your kingdom, can my boy sit on your right hand and on your left hand? And what she has in mind there is a earthly terrestrial kingdom and Jesus sitting on the throne and her two boys being his henchmen because she thinks this is gonna happen here and it's gonna happen now. And this is the beauty, this is the beauty of the donkey. The donkey is not a mistake. The donkey is very intentional. Because on one hand, the donkey is him manifesting Zechariah 9.9 is about me. I am that king. I am that Messiah. There is no other. I am God. He is saying that. But at the same time, he's also coming in not on a war horse. He's not coming in on a valiant steed. He's coming in on a beast of burden. He's coming in gentle. He's coming in humble. He's coming in manifesting himself as Isaiah 9 calls him the Prince of Peace. He is the king of the universe. He is the king that they have been waiting for, but he's not the king that they understand or really even expect. He's, he's much different. This is the paradox of his character. Jesus Christ is God. You know, that's something that we, we die on that. The world is attacking that. He's not just some prophet. He's not just some sage. He's not just some good moral teacher. Listen to the way that he speaks. You know, it's so fascinating. Jesus is so fascinating. He's so incredible. He's so humble and he's so gentle, but he's not modest. Have you ever paid attention to the things that Jesus says? You can't say stuff like this, you know? Unless you are telling the truth. Listen to the way that he speaks. In John 8, 58, again, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming the name of Exodus chapter three. And if you think that he wasn't, look at the way that the religious leaders of his day respond. They pick up stones to throw at him because they knew that he was saying, I am Yahweh, I am, I am God in the flesh. John 8, 58, he says, I am. Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. It was another thing that got him in trouble. He defies the, the rules of the religious leaders at the time. He says things like this, Luke 10, 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In John chapter six, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. What Jesus is saying is that what we need more than temporary and physical sustenance is a relationship with him personally. We need to be forgiven of our sins, to be brought back into relationship with almighty, holy God. And Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Another thing that got him in big trouble. They were gonna kill him on the spot for saying that. Jesus is the king of the universe, but he's the gentle king. And he's saving by being humble 
and by being weak, not by starting an armed revolution. And this here, this story, him coming into Jerusalem is the last week of his life because you cannot do something like this and expect to live for very long unless you go to war, but Jesus does not go to war. His disciples, his followers would have seen him do this and they would have known. I mean, they've already seen people try to kill Jesus several times in the past, but something like this, you don't get away with it. So they're thinking, all right, there, there's no, this is the point of no return. We have to bear arms. We have to kill. We have to fight because there's, we're not going to be able to go back into hiding after this. We're not going to be able to avoid this any longer. But Jesus doesn't go to war. What Jesus does for us, listen to this, what Jesus does for us, for you personally, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, is what, we're, is what Hebrews tells us. What Jesus does is he knowingly and he voluntarily walks into the greatest political injustice that was ever done on earth, ever. He knew it. He knew what he was going into. He was God in the flesh, and life wasn't working out the way that we think life should work out, right? We see a king. That's why people had such a hard time believing in Jesus, because they're, they're like, this is, you're riding in on a donkey. Where's the gusto? Where's the machismo? Where's the flex? Where's the armor? Where's the, where's the brutality? A guy riding in peacefully, gently, on a donkey. Can you imagine the confusion of his followers? Think about that. And think about, I, I ask you to think about your own life. Is your conclusion that Jesus isn't paying attention? Is your conclusion that he's aloof? Or that he's mean? I've thought that. I've thought that for a long, I thought that for years. I thought Jesus is just mean. He's a bully because life didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. And I was being a crybaby. I mean, it wasn't even really that big of a deal, you know? I still had three square meals a day and a hot shower, and I was still bemoaning the fact that my life didn't go the way. I was, friends, we have to look, we have to look up. We have to, we have to stop. We cannot look at this. And there are people I know, and I mean, some of you know that I know, some of you and I, we talk every week. I love you guys. And I know for some of you, it's not easy. I didn't even write this down. I'm just feeling like, I, I love you guys. And Jesus Christ is doing something. He's working. And it may not feel like it. It may not, it may not seem like it. You may not see the, the quote unquote fruit of it right now. Friends, will you follow him? Will you pick up your cross and follow him and deny self and go wherever he's leading you? Because the disciples in this moment are thinking, right on, man, it's time for war. We've been preparing for this. We know that Peter chopped off a guy's ear when Jesus was arrested. He's been sharpening his sword. He's preparing for this. And Jesus goes a completely different way. He does not start a war. He walks into a political injustice and he himself is killed. What is Jesus doing? What kind of king is he? He's perfect. We may not even know it. And I'll, I'll close with this. So, Jesus says, there's so much more here, but for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving on. But in verse 41, it says, how he approached Jerusalem. Get, listen to this. As he approached Jerusalem, so everybody just, they laid their garments down at his feet. They cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It seems pretty good, right? That's fruit. That's belief. That's great. Things are looking good. But then Jesus actually gets into the city 
Verse 41, and he saw the city and he cried over it, saying, if you knew. It seems like they knew. He says, if you knew this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the time of your visitation? I mean, he just rode into Jerusalem with fanfare. What are we missing? It's the same thing that we've been missing time and time. Again, people wanted a political king. They wanted a revolt. They wanted a war. What do you want? It's a, it's a question that has to be asked. Do we love Jesus for who he is come hell or high water, come destruction, come financial reversal, come illness? Do we love Jesus or are we sort of selfishly adhered to him in some self-deceived way because we think that we're gonna get something good out of the deal? Now, the, the truth of the matter is is that we are gonna get something so good out of the deal that the Bible says that no mind has conceived, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for those. No mind has imagined what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. We have a hope of eternity ahead of us that we can't even fathom, an inheritance that is undefiled, pure, unfading, indestructible, love that never goes away, families that never get sick, lies and mutiny and crying and tears and sadness and age and, 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 and broken bodies and decay and atrophy, all of that will be gone, we're promised. We're promised that. But here is not our home yet. Remember, we're homesick. Follow King Jesus. Jesus knew that their, their praising and their shouting and their hosannas were, were right. He deserves that. But it was misguided. John chapter 2, verse 23 says that he knows what is in all people. He received their praise, but he knew that it was misguided. He knew that it was shallow. And it, the proof is in the fact that many, many, many of these people in just a few days were going to cry out for Jesus' blood. Jesus walked into a political injustice. He walked into an execution knowingly, and he did it because he loves you. What is Jesus doing? I'll be honest with you. Most of the time, I don't specifically know. But you read a story like this, you see a King Jesus like this, and I'm, I'm asking, consider that he's doing something good. And I know that some of you hear that and you think there's no possible good that could come from my situation right now. You don't know how bad I'm hurting. You don't know how irreversible this situation is. Ian, you have no idea. It's easy for you to stand up there and say that, but you actually don't know my situation. Friends, I, I don't, I don't, I cannot, I cannot force this upon you. I can just implore you to take it to the Lord in prayer. I've shared the story of my father's death a lot because that was that moment for me. So I'm not just regurgitating something that somebody told me about or that I read somewhere. I, I have lived this up to a certain point. And my dad's death was the, was the entrance hall of massive amounts of worship because I know that that kingdom that is waiting for us, my dad's there. And he's there because Jesus did this, because he walked into a political execution. And that causes me to worship Jesus. So in a weird way, my, but in a very powerful, true way, my dad's death was the entrance into worship like I've never experienced in my life. That's the Jesus whom we serve. And 
here and now we have the church, we have prayer, we have community. The church rejoices with those who rejoice, weeps with those who weep. May not be able to give you an exact answer on why something is happening right now, but all I can do, friends, is say, look at Jesus. Look at what he does. His story is right here. Read it. Memorize it. Be a student of the scriptures. And trust that the Lord Christ himself, resurrected from the dead, for our justification will teach you by the power of his spirit as you progress daily in his word and in the community of the church. He's good. This story is proof that he's good and that he's brilliant and that he's perfect, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Amen?